right, Peace Nicks. Thanks for tuning in to the Peace on Drugs podcast. Some quick business. If you want to try a hemp cigarette that doesn't taste like shit, go to sugarcali.com. Enter the offer code PEACE15, P-E-A-C-E-15, for 15% off. And orders over $25, get free shipping. This supports the podcast. Also, they really are good hemp cigarettes. A great alternative to tobacco if you're trying to quit. Or if you're like me and you used to smoke and do occasionally miss that cigarette, this is a good something you can actually enjoy with a beer that doesn't lead back to a nasty habit. All right, today's guest, Jimmy Fritz. I'm very excited about this guest. He wrote Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, a psychedelic travelogue and memoir. Jimmy Fritz is a heterodoxical polemicist, a skeptical polymath, an iconoclastic anti-theist, and an aficionado of stoicism. He is also a writer, filmmaker, musician, bon vivant, and former ethical drug dealer. You can get his book on Amazon, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, or go to Jimmy Fritz, J-I-M-I-F-R-I-T-Z, jimmyfritz.ca. You can listen to his music, check out his films, and of course, definitely, I highly recommend his book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I just started his earlier book, Rave Culture, an Insider's Overview. I, I just love the work that this guy's done, and he was such a great person to talk to. I know you're going to enjoy this, so let's dive in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. Yep. Okay, good. We're hey, all th- good. Awesome. Thanks for doing this podcast. Ain't no problem. Um, yeah, I read uh, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, and I absolutely loved it, man. Great, great work. Good stuff. Yeah, I, um, it made me really jealous. I think when I was younger, I wish I would have traveled more because you were all over the place, and it just it was seemed really. Yeah, it's really... one regret that a lot of people have, and it's uh, I'm happy not to have that regret because I've done all the traveling I really want to do. I don't have any great ambition to to do much more traveling. I mean, I'll go places for a specific event or purpose. But just to go places, to see places, and wander around in cafes and stuff. I've done so much of that that um, I'm uh, I'm good. <laughs> gotcha. Are you going to use the video as well, or just the audio? Just the audio. Okay, great. Good. Um, yeah, I uh, actually my wife was asking. I turn forty next year, so she's like, "What do you want to do for your fortieth?" And I was going to do uh, possibly QS. We've been a bunch, and I was like, "That's it. No QS. We're going to Europe. We're going to do two weeks in Europe instead." So nice. Good, book good definitely- stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's fascinating, uh, fascinating history. You'll enjoy it, I'm sure. Go to Amsterdam. That's to that's on our list. We were gonna Go do to um, Paris. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely doing Amsterdam. And I want to do Berlin. Um, we're actually looking at I'm now that I'm reading um your your first book, Rave Culture, and you um mentioned uh this was a love parade in Berlin, and I looked it up and that's in July, so we might do that. Yeah, yeah, that's quite an event. I didn't even know it was still happening. 
I just looked it up and it's happening in 2022. It might have stopped for COVID or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, they moved it to San Francisco at one point and then they moved it back again. It got too big. It was like, you know, a couple of million people showed up. Yeah. It was huge. And they had some problems with crowd control and whatnot. So I think they dropped it for a while, but I'm glad it's back. Yeah. What are the drug laws in, in Germany? Are they very similar to ours or the United States? I'm not sure, actually. I don't think they have legal. I think they might have some medical marijuana laws, but I don't think they have legal recreation or anything. Gotcha. And, and nor decriminalized. Like it's, it's a penalty. It's probably pretty, uh, pretty, you know, lenient, though. Oh, yeah. It doesn't strike me as a very punitive society. Gotcha. That's, well, I do know that their um, their arrest or their incarceration rates much lower than ours. I mean, I think it's 93 per 100,000 and we're at like 350 in the United States, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I um yeah, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. So this is um this book is right up our alley for the cuz I mean, the, the whole purpose of my podcast is to end the drug war or to we're trying to cover the end of the drug war as it does come to an end. Some it's sort of getting there, right? Um Yes, it is. Yeah. And it started with cannabis. Cannabis ended up being the gateway into making people realize they've been lied to because now you have a lot of, um, I live in Florida, so a lot of elderly people here that were anti-medical uh, marijuana are now using it and realizing that it's a very beneficial drug. And Right. So that's happened. And then Canada legalized it. And you said about that, that now it's exclusively big business owns it. So it actually ended up being a kind of a negative thing when they legalized it. Kind of, yeah, they made a few mistakes, of course, but um, they're talking about licensing smaller growers. I mean, what made the what made the pot industry so, um, you know, effective and and uh, and uh, profitable in in BC? I mean, the whole economy was being run by, you know, uh, underground pot growers for a long time. As we know, boasted the best best pot in the world, won the cannabis cup like six years in a row or something. BC Bud was the, was the best around. And it was because of the expertise of the growers. So they were growing this fantastic pot. And then the government came in and legalized it and then tried to grow their own pot. And of course, they were, it wasn't as good. So there's still this, uh, you know, this underground collection of uh, expert growers who are now been squeezed out of the market because they don't have, you know, two or three million dollars to start up these big operations that they're licensing. They're not licensing small, you know, small boutique growers. They keep talking about it, but they haven't done it yet. Maybe they will at some point. But these things generally happen in increments, which is why you need, you know, the medical marijuana laws before you get the recreational. We have the recreational in Canada now. It's, uh, it's legal on a recreational basis for anybody. So I think the same thing will happen with psychedelics eventually. You know, right now they're being legitimized through medical and therapeutic uses. But I've never used them therapeutically or, or medically, you know, medically or, or uh, you know, for uh, therapy. I've always used them, you know, recreationally and inspirationally and to stimulate creativity and all those things, which I think is, to me, is just as important. That's what made, it's what's, it's what's made my life worth living. So that's what I recommend. And I don't think there are enough people speaking out about that. So that was one of the one of the reasons I wrote this book was to present that part of the argument was that you know it's they don't have to be medicine or they don't have to be therapeutic, they can actually just be inspirational and fun and recreational and uh, you know they can incorporate them into your lives in many different ways. Yeah, and that's uh, what Bob Jesse said uh, 
the betterment of well people. Like just because you're not necessarily broken by any psychological terms doesn't mean you can't be in a better place. It doesn't mean you can't be more connected with the human race and be you know more benevolent or empathetic. And I think that we our society lacks a lot of that, but it's it's consumer based. So it's it's not seeing the whole picture sometimes. And if we can I mean yeah. it's like yeah. And people, it's a more legitimate use. People can people can get their head around the legitimate use of a, a medicine, you know, for for uh, medical purposes. But uh, they're still kind of resistant to people having a good time. That's what Puritanism <laughs> which is, is. Which has been a bit of a problem. I mean, that's been a problem with marijuana all along. But like I say, we are getting over it. I mean, it's amazing what's going on right now. The changes that are happening all over the world. You know, more and more legalization, more and more decriminalization, and more and more legitimate uses. So, I think we're going in the right direction now. That we definitely are finally taking that. You know, turning that corner where we're seeing the laws ease up for the first time in in my lifetime. And this war has been going on since before I was born. Um. Yeah, it's it's crazy that they ever that the world ever got this bad. Where we actually in some countries, you know, in Asia, where people are being murdered for drug possession, right? And um, you know, we had a president recently that, you know, uh, congratulated them for their handling of the drug problem in um, the Philippines. So right, of course he was batshit crazy. So you know, you can't put too much story in that. Which one? Both of them, Robert Duterte and the other guy. Well, Trump is I was thinking of <laughs> specifically. Yeah, I wasn't going to say his name. He took crazy to a whole new level. He did, and it's not gone away yet. Nope. Um, yeah, and I'm down here in Florida, so I, I it's flags everywhere um, now. Now the whole thing is fuck Biden, and that's the movement. And it's um, I've never seen such a just blatant disregard of you know lack of respect for the office, and that's what's happened now. Kids are coming up to me like I play music for a living. I want to talk to you a little bit about music too, but I play cover music in the bars down here. But kids coming up, like young kids, like eight nine years old, with shirts that say "Let's go Brandon," which is code for "Fuck Joe Biden." And I just want to be like, like what is going on here? And this is supposed to be the right wing conservative party, the party of morals, the party of a good Christian. You know that that's who this party used to say they were yeah. at least. Yeah, the old Republicans are long gone now, I think. Yeah, it, well, but even like, I mean, my parents' generation, like my my, my family is very conservative. I come from uh, the Bible Belt, North Carolina, and they're very religious and conservative. But they've kind of, it was weird how they didn't like Trump when he was when he was running. They didn't like him because he wasn't, didn't fit what they thought was morally right. And then when he won, they they fell in. So now, now they're like, yeah, they, they, they love him. They think he loves this country. It's weird just to watch that happen. Yeah, it's certainly bizarre. But um, you're up in Canada, so. <laughs> yeah, we're up here. We're, we're all sane up here. <laughs> <laughs> we're all sane, well-adjusted, and using psychedelics recreationally. <laughs> nice. Well, <laughs> some of our states are starting to do a little bit of that. We have, let's see, Denver decriminalized psilocybin. I think Washington, D.C., yeah, Portland or no, the whole state of Oregon decriminalized. And it was funny hearing people's reactions to that down here. People are like, oh, they're, they're rioting in the streets, but let's legalize all the drugs. It's like, all right, first of all, they didn't legalize any drugs. Like you don't even no. understand what's going on here. Right. But uh, just the idea of stopping arresting people for their personal use. I mean, again, this goes to the conservatives. Uh, they're the freedom party. Love freedom. It's like, well, what about my personal individual freedom? They don't love right. that. Yeah, that's what I see it as. I see it as a basic human right that you have the right to put anything you want in your body, be that, you know, good or bad. I mean, we don't 
we don't we people eat themselves to death and drink themselves to death and we don't have a problem with that but to, you know smoke a joint recreationally and that's uh, out of order so it's a bit inconsistent and incoherent yeah i i and i, I always try to figure out is it because of the religious um underbelly of our country um you know because we kind of started the war on drugs across the world and was it the puritanism of it, of our country or and as um I had Maya Solovitz as a guest, and she said she thinks that it's not the religion, the Christian religion, it's the consumer religion. It's the capitalist religion that doesn't fit psychedelics into its mainframe. And as you see psychedelics start to become legal, where are they trying to do it? What are they trying to do with them? Trying to microdose. Let's make people more productive and give them smaller amounts of this drug over an extended period of time. Yeah. Well, I think the commercial, I think there are, is a commercial aspect to legalization of drugs because then they get the taxes. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry that they're not getting taxed. So mm -hmm. there is, a, there is a, um, a commercial advantage to legalizing and decriminalization. But I think it is an underlying, uh, originally a religious, you know, this religious idea, the puritanical idea that pleasure is bad, basically. And anything that gives you, you know, puts you in an ecstatic state is suspicious. And that uh, somehow having a, having a really good time and exploring your own consciousness is somehow frivolous and somehow less important than, you know, jobs and making money and, and you know, other, other considerations. But I would argue that it's just as important. I think the most important aspect, the most important thing for psychological health is, uh, you know, meaningful human interactions. And um, I get a lot of that with, you know, getting together with people and, and, and getting high and, uh, and that, that type of connection. It's a really meaningful connection and you can get a much more deeper connection with people on psychedelics than you can normally. And that, to, you know, that's, that, that's really important for psychological health. Any psychologist would tell you that, that the most important thing is meaningful, authentic human connections. And psychedelics can really help with that. So that's the advantage. Yeah, it does. And I, I do think it is, a, if you go back to the beginning of when the, the church originally opposed, it actually was the, um, the conquistadors, when they came over the Spanish, they didn't want the natives using their their the herbal things they were doing, what was like mescaline and, uh, and cannabis, because it was the, the sacrament, they were trying to spread Christianity. And it didn't work when you say you go to a church and you try to have that bond with you know sober and everybody's reading and singing the same songs versus like you said that bond of psychedelics if you go to a, a, a rave or if you go to a, a festival and you're all taking psychedelics together and dancing it's such a deeper um you know it almost more um it goes into our ancient roots like you feel it um at, like yeah so the well, church couldn't compete with that well one of the first studies that was ever done into psychedelics was the, the good friday experiment where they took a bunch of uh clergymen like christian priests and they gave them uh, lsd and uh 80 90 of them had what they considered to be you know bona fide real religious experiences i mean through the lens of their uh, you know christian training or whatever but they even to this day those people were interviewed like 40 years later they said it was still one of the most meaningful experiences they ever had yeah it's um and it's, it is powerful that's the first thing that really changed my my life, I my first LSD experience, I was young, I was like 16, and I was raised in the church. I didn't know, I don't know if I, I it's not that I didn't believe it, I just didn't really care care about it. You know, I think I, I told myself I believed it, 
but um, the first real experience, like almost religious experience I had was LSD. And I wasn't told it had any religious properties. It was just all of a sudden I felt the world open up to me and I felt connected to it for the first time. And I never experienced that sitting in church. Church was just a boring place you went, I, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that that had, that used to happen a lot at raves because I, I started to go into raves. And I was really impressed with that, which is why I wrote my first book, which is The Rave Culture and Insider's Overview by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine, fine bookstores everywhere. And um, I was so impressed with the movement that, and there was really very little, the only thing in the press was, you know, a bunch of teenagers on drugs and it was dangerous and people were dying. And that wasn't what was happening at all. People were actually, you know, transforming their lives through meaningful social connection. And that's what I saw. And I saw people's lives change routinely on, a, on an ongoing basis year after year. It was quite incredible. It was really people fascinating. That, oh, sorry, go ahead. That had never had that meaningful connection before, you know, people that felt disconnected and uh, disjointed in their lives. And finally, you know, you could see it on their faces that for the first time in their life, they were experiencing, you know, uh, freedom, like personal freedom and, and empathetic connection with, with other people that were all on the same page. And it was a really, really powerful life-changing experience for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I remember when the rave thing first hit and um and it was a lot of negative publicity, like you said. It wasn't what was happening actually at the raves. No. But but the news was talking about everybody's dying from different drugs. And if you look at the actual what they were saying, they were talking about the contamination of the drugs that were killing them. And it was a small amount of people too. But either way, what you're saying is because there's not a safe supply, some people are yeah. gonna die. And they're actually dying again now because fentanyl is making its way into the ecstasy supply. Yeah which is a problem with prohibition, right? When you have exactly. when you have people mixing up these things in basements, it can be dangerous and uh, a, safe, a safe supply solves those problems. Yeah, 1985 when the DEA banned ecstasy or MDMA, it, um, there were zero casualties. You could buy it at the with a credit card at some clubs and there was no yeah. casualties. And then as soon as it was outlawed, what starts happening? Well, the, the black market takes over and right. the supply gets contaminated and people die. Yeah, yeah, it's a direct consequence of prohibition. Yeah, it's sad that we have the answer to the, a lot of these problems by ending prohibition, but um, we have a whole industry created around people's jobs, employment, lawyers, DAs, everybody's life, their livelihoods depend on this drug war to continue because it's the biggest yeah. amount of money that we inject into our legal system that doesn't need to be injected at all. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, so I, I, I never, I did not get into raves when I was young, and I hate it because I went to one actual rave when I was, I don't know, it was probably late '90s, and I remember I, I would never done ecstasy, and I was scared to, and I'd done LSD a lot, so I did LSD, and I had a great experience with it, but I missed out on the dancing in that part. I was more like into the lights and kind of in my own world versus yeah. connected with everybody there. It was still, right. I still had friends there, and it was fun, but. I, after reading your book, I was like, and it's not over. It's not like I missed out. So now I'm like, I, I got to go. Um, yeah, go. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that was unique to the rave scene. And, you know, it was kind of a continuation of the, of the uh, you know, Summer of Love and the hippie scene in the 60s. But it was, it was on a different level. It wasn't, um, it was more empath empathetic. You know, that's what was unique about it. It was this group mind experience where everybody got connected. And everybody felt empathy towards everybody else and towards themselves. And that was that was the unique aspect of it that uh, that really changed people's lives. 
and like you say on LSD, if you, if you don't get the dosage right or you do a little bit too more, you become isolated more. It's better, it's better outside, it's better in nature, it's better with a few close friends. It's not really, you know, you get overstimulated at a rave on acid. You can do a little bit and it's fine, but um, yeah, it's easy to do too much. And then you just wanna, you know, go outside and sit on the beach and talk to the seaweed. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I did too much. I could say I enjoyed myself. I enjoyed watching people dance with the lights. Yeah. It was really cool. I just wasn't really a part of it. And that's what I right. and I've done and I've done ecstasy in other settings and I've had had great great experiences with it, but not not what I, I feel like I missed out on the the whole rave experience. So um I'm and I love I love electronic music. Um I'm really into like the Spanish Bongle, like a world EDM kind of music. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I'd like to go to one of those concerts. And and then also I was reading about if, if there's um, festivals in like Spain and because Spain has these really good policies where they'll, they've decriminalized drugs. They've been decriminalized since I think 1972 or something, but Portugal, they, I think you mean. No, Portugal's 19 or 2000. Oh, yeah. Spain actually, that's one thing that doesn't get reported on a lot. Spain has been decriminalized since the seventies. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, I mean, it's not legal to sell or anything, but it's been decriminalized and they do they actually have testing uh they test the drugs it's government funded and it's the best text testing so all these like dance safe groups they'll send it to the, Span right. the spanish testing and so th and therefore the street drugs are like 99 pure because everybody's getting them tested for free so drug dealers can't sell you know adulterated product so, right so my idea is to go to a rave in spain at some point i'd like to uh experience that because at least you know what you're getting yeah, there aren't too many really authentic raves anymore. There was a, a very specific formula that came up, you know, the late 80s and early 90s, where there was a very, very specific kind of formula. And when, when I started going to parties, I, I reproduced that formula for my own events. And I started uh, promoting raves for, uh, you know, a number of years. I did, you know, one a month and uh and and use that exact formula and kept it going now it's kind of fragmented into lots of different scenes the music is uh the music is has gone off in lots of different directions and the, the focus uh, on that uh, you know group mind trance experience is um has sort of been lost there are still mm -hmm. events around but they're few and far between these days Gotcha. So, so I did miss out on the authentic rave, and and it was really fascinating listening to you talk about how they, like these they would be secretive, but day of you could find out. Here's the number you got to call this day, and sometimes it was just to find out where to meet in person to find out where the rave was. Yeah, there were meetup points, so you'd get a phone number, you know, on the flyer, and you call the phone number on the day of, and they say go to this place. And it'd be a parking lot somewhere in a city and you drive there and get there and then you'd get told where the location was and you'd go from there so it was this series of uh, you know and it got pretty elaborate at times there were people on the roof with walkie-talkies you know watching for the police and <laughs> all these procedures it was quite exciting it was a real adventure going through parties back then you that sounds up running, awesome. Or up running around in the woods, you know, trying to find a party, and there'd be, you know, signs on the side of the road with twigs and, and rocks. So you'd have to find these clues, and then you'd eventually get there. But when you got there, you felt like you'd really achieved something. You really arrived somewhere special because you gone through all this procedure to get there. That's so like it was fun. It was yeah. good times. Yeah, it was really, really, uh, really a fun time. It's like half the party was finding the party and that's part of the game it makes it so much fun like it's not yeah. just like go to the bar it's right there whenever you want to get there 
right it's the whole thing that's a, a beautiful thing I, yeah i really wish i could have been a part of something like that i i wonder though you know if you say that the thinic raves kind of shifted and it's moved and it's not the same thing anymore and if you look at the uh, the acid parties of the you know late 60s with um yeah. uh, or not know, the late 60s but when the grateful dead were playing same kind of thing was happening with acid back then. So I'm wondering, what's the next thing going to be? What's the next thing? Well, that's what up? I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the new music, the new drugs, and the new <laughs> scene. I'm good to go. Hopefully, <laughs> I it's. Know, I don't know what it's going to be. Hopefully, it's not um a virtual world. That's what I'm scared of. It's going to all yeah, just happen no, in there. I have no interest in that either. Last thing I want to do is strap on a headset and go into a cartoon world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do have a VR. I do have the VR thing. It's I, I enjoy some of the games, but it's not a place that's authentic. I've last time I did mushrooms, I put it on. I thought it might be cool. And it was the least, it was like immediately was the fakest thing I'd ever been in. And I was like, this yeah, isn't yeah. fun at all. That's the problem. We're like with the you know, with psychedelics, it, it it magnifies and amplifies reality. So if there's something, you know, if there's something wrong with it or inauthentic about it, I mean, I can't even use my phone if I'm on acid. You yeah. look at the screen and it's just a bunch of buzzing pixels. It doesn't look like anything. <laughs> exactly. Same with watching a movie. You know, it's like what you know. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't seem real. So it doesn't have much of an effect. So virtual reality to me, I haven't seen. You know, I haven't seen any virtual reality that was anywhere close to you know reality or or you know not anything more than a than a cartoon world. Yeah, it's very cartoonish and it'll get, keep getting better. But either way, it's inauthentic. I think it's a fun little workout I can do in my living room with these bone arrow games and it's a little bit of fun, but it's nothing authentic. And if that becomes the next fad, the next we can all be connected here, then I'm, I'm not going to be a part of it. I, I think that's we're losing. The well, I think connection. what's going to happen is if you look at the, um, you know, the exponential rate of, uh, of computer processing and capability and you project that 50 years or 100 years in the future, it seems to me that it's inevitable at some point we'll get to the point where virtual reality will be indistinguishable from reality oh, because it's just scary. a question it's just a question of complexity right mm -hmm. you just have to get all the three dimensions worked out and the, and, the, and the realistic imagery and at some point you won't be able to tell the difference i mean that's inevitable given the given the progression that we've seen so far at some point in the future, we'll have virtual reality, which is indistinguishable from real reality. So that might be interesting. <laughs> Actually, it will. And you know what's going to be cool is it's not going to be like the Matrix. Remember the movie, The Matrix? They, they plug it into the back of your head and everybody yeah. has a port. I think what's going to happen, if you, like Ray Kurzweil talks about it in The Singularity, is it'll be more like an injectable nanobots that go in and actually go into your neurons and you can go into your computer, upload video games into your own neurons, uh, artificial neurons that you've injected so it'll almost be like a drug in itself you'll inject it exactly. and, then, and then you'll upload into your neurons that you've added and then that's when reality will extremely you wouldn't there'll be no difference in this reality or that reality because it'll actually be happening in your head right you but you still got the problem as you are in an alternative reality so yeah. i mean there is something to be said for uh, you know a walking walking through the woods <laughs> you know 100 walking through nature i mean if it's a, if it's a, i guess if it's a simulation and you can't tell the difference then is there a difference hmm and that's an interesting question uh, I, I guess there is. I mean, it's like when you see someone do DMT, if you do like when I if I smoke DMT and I all of a sudden I'm in another world, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But if you sit beside someone else doing it, when they go into the world, it's not like they're gone in that world. They're sitting there just staring at the floor. And yeah. that's what that's what we'd see in the virtual world. Right. So your body is yeah. still here. 
you know, you're not getting healthy by sitting, you know, going into the other world. Ultimately, you're just sitting on the couch. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sort of going on in your head. But, you know, that's what happens when we dream too, right? We're just laying in bed, but there's all kinds of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems very real. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's a, I'm kind of happy that it's a future that I probably won't see. <laughs> it, it is, it is one that makes me wonder, like you said, if, if you can go into your own head and see the most beautiful world ever imaginable, then what makes that what's going to make this world excited if you see an actual waterfall in nature, if you've seen something that's on an imaginary planet. And um, you already see that with kids. My buddy took his kid fishing and there were some sharks. They were trying to catch this fish and sharks were attacking it on the side of the boat. All this is happening. And the kid was bored. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to be playing his video games. I'm like, how do you see a shark by the boat attacking another shark and not immediately think that's the craziest thing you've ever seen? But they, they, it's just, and it's not, most kids would probably be excited about the shark, but the fact that there are kids already now that are just not concerned with the natural world, it's just bizarre to me. And that is going to keep getting more and more like that. Yeah, at some point we'll get we'll get desensitized to the real world, and that's a kind of a frightening prospect. I think I kind of enjoy the real world. <laughs> I like the augmented world. You know, I mean, psychedelics are great because they they amplify the real world. They amplify reality, and so that's the, you know that's their value. Whereas you know what you're talking about is kind of a completely artificial reality that doesn't exist. So that's a, that's a kind of a different a different ball game altogether. It is. I'm kind of partial to this world. <laughs> yeah. I kind of got it. used to it over the years, you know. <laughs> so Yeah, and, maybe, and you've seen so much of it. Be. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, you know, you know I've, had, I've had a wonderful life. So I guess for some people that don't have wonderful lives, though, and, you know, do regular jobs and boring jobs, then the idea of strapping on a headset or shooting up some nanobots and going off to paradise and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty attractive because mm-hmm. it's escapist, right? That's actually, that's a very good point. A lot of people get stuck into uh, just, you know, these circumstances that are just monotonous. Every day is the same thing. And and I, I got lucky because I ended up getting arrested for drugs. I wasn't able to get into the corporate world or, you know, and I just decided to take the path of just playing music and it worked yeah. out. So, yeah, yeah. But for a lot of people, I have friends that sell cars for a living that are just that every day. That's what they're doing. And you try to say, hey, well, you want to go here or fly there? And then they have kids. They're like, nope, none of that. We're just going right. to live this life. So I, I understand. I know. grew up in a small town in uh, in England where it was a factory town. So there was a giant factory estate surrounded by council houses, row houses, and everybody, their whole lives, they they went to the factories. And so everybody went went to work every day and worked in these factories all day. And they came home and they ate and they went watched TV and went to sleep. And that was their entire lives uh, mm-hmm. from the age of 15 when they left school to when they died. And, uh, you know, you've got to question the value of a, of a life like that, whether it's whether it's really worth it. <laughs> so I decided at a very early age to uh, to leave that town and never go back. <laughs> and do something else so, so in one way it inspired me to you know to seek alternatives which turned out to be a, you know really advantageous but some people just get stuck so i guess some people don't have the imagination to to get out and break out of the rut and uh, and look for other alternatives and for those people it's just uh, you know it's a kind of a, a wasted life in, in some ways 
I agree. I agree. And honestly, I didn't have the imagination when I was young. I kind of got lucky kind of falling into place with the music that I've done. But when, like when listen, reading your story, you would just be on the road, sometimes flat broke in another country and it would just work out something somehow, some way you'd end up on a couch somewhere and then you'd have money and you'd get this little job and then you're traveling to this country and then there'd be money, but then it would run out and just, but it never was a concern. You weren't like, well, I have to make sure I have enough for this, this, and this. It was just, no, we're just going to do this. We're going to live our lives and see what happens. And it just worked out. Yeah, no, it did. And uh, and I was never a concern, you know, even when I was in, uh, you know, sort of bad situations or whatever, or, you know, tough situations, it was always, it was always, I just felt like it was all just an adventure. I didn't feel like the world was conspiring against me or anything. I felt like it was all just a natural progression and, and I just carried on. And it, uh, I got the impression that uh, everything would always work out and always had that attitude that everything would work. If I arrived in the city and I was on my own, I had money, I'd go hang out in the square and I'd meet some guy and I'd go back to his place and then I'd be at a party. And then, you know, one thing would just lead to another and everything always worked out. And uh, that's pretty much the way my whole life has worked out. It's just, uh, and I think it has something to do with the attitude. If you have the attitude that things are gonna have, you know, happen, you know, work out all right then they're much more likely to, whether you know you have the attitude that everything's difficult and you know insurmountable, then that's what you're gonna get. So I think it has a lot to do with your 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 mind space, your headspace, where you're at, as to what you what you manifest in your life. And I've had a pretty charmed existence all in all. Yeah, I will say this. I think you got lucky a few times, though. I mean, for the most part, I'm 100 with you. I think yeah, the, just the attitude and this, you know, it was an adventure. But there was times when you could have got arrested for hash that might have just changed the whole course of your life. But it could have it, done. Yeah. But I don't know. I might have gone to prison for a few years and I might have written a couple of good books. You know, <laughs> that's true. If you keep the adventure going, it's a positive way right? of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, if you use your time, it doesn't matter where you are. If you use your time wisely and and stimulate yourself or whatever, then um, you, I think you can overcome a lot, you know, a lot of adversity with that, that attitude. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at things. And and I think that sometimes we get caught up in the victim mentality. And I'm not talking about the, the politics on that, like that gets a lot deeper things, but just people that if something bad happens, you use that as an excuse not to move past it. And um, and right. I've, I've had that happen in my life where I've looked at my past as something that was a burden until you realize it's not even there anymore. You're just reliving it for no reason. And as soon as you drop it, you can, and then you have a story you're building on, you keep on moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that too. Like dwelling on the past rather than looking to the future. Like I was always, I was always here and now and looking to the future. I've never really reflected, you know, on things going wrong in the past because uh, there didn't seem to be any point to that. I think people get mired in, uh, you know, in their past, even if they have trauma and stuff. People get obsessed with this. You know, they get obsessed with their trauma from from childhood and sure it has an effect but i think you can let it go you know i think i think part of the process of, of getting past those difficulties is just letting them go and just seeing them they don't exist anymore the past doesn't exist it's just an idea in your mind it's just hanging in your mind causing you problems or just get rid of it just stop thinking about it like you can i think you can just let things go you can let go of past trauma rather than reliving it and hashing it up and owning it and you know become having it be who you are i think there's a value in in just being able to let go 
that's the, that's the practice of meditation is letting go of your thoughts that's your thoughts are not who you are they just come and go they're like clouds in the sky you don't need to attach yourself to every nasty thing that ever happened to you you can just say okay it wasn't my fault it wasn't anything to do with me it was just circumstances and move on and just forget about it and get on with tomorrow mm -hmm. what do you want to do tomorrow yeah Eckhart that's totally... my attitude and it served me well and i think it would serve a lot of people well Definitely. Yeah. It reminded me of Eckhart Tolle talks about it in um, A New Earth about the, the birds are watching ducks get in a fight in a pond. The ducks get in a fight. And as soon as the fight's over, you see them both vigorously flap their wings. That's to release all that negative energy. And then they just float serenely in the other direction like it never happened. Right. Like if you, if you see a person do that, person gets in a fight, they're both going to relive that fight over and over. The fight's still happening in their head as they float away. There's nothing serene about the float away. And their body thinks the fight's still happening. So it's still exactly. producing adrenaline and everything else. Yeah, because your body, you, you don't know the difference between reality and fantasy if, if it'll react you, you 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 react to it the same way so uh, you got to let go of the let go of those ideas it's just about uh, it's just about letting go of, of ideas that don't serve you and when the thing's over it's over it's it's uh, you know it's almost like it didn't happen yep and um... unless you hang on to it you know which people have a tendency to do yeah, it, we, we do. And I, I've spent a lot of my life that way for when I was young, you know, up into my mid 20s. And then I just realized, well, it's actually reading books like A New Earth actually helped me realize, you know, just it's time to move on and forgive, not for the person or for whatever happened, but for myself, just to forgive the past. And and now I've, you know, I, I have a very happy life. I don't have to you know deal with those problems anymore. And a lot of the depression, like the pills they try to give me, the antidepressants, none of that helped. It was just yep. realizing I didn't need that. I didn't need to hold on to my past at all. And now I have a good relationship with everybody from my past. You know, everything's back the way it should be. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's the way to go. And I think the antidepressants and stuff and therapy, I think it can be useful, you know, as a as a bridge. But at some point you have to get over it. At some point you have to you have to, you know, live your life and be who you are. And so that should be the end result, not to be medicated for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things to, to bring this back to psychedelics. Uh, one of the problems the establishment might have with psychedelics is they don't want something that's going to be a cure. They want something that's going to be a treatment because it's a lot more profitable. If they can keep yeah. somebody on a medication versus takes a five a five grams of, of psilocybin mushrooms, have a really good experience with um with a guide, and you're going to go through a lot of trauma in in that one single night. That might you know you might never need a trip again, or you might do it every few months, but. I, I mean that's I, right and that's why the antidepressants and all those drugs caught on so much because they're they're a daily thing that you do for life you know some people are on those things all their lives and uh yeah it's good for business but it's not great for for you know people necessarily especially when the side effects i, I think are just as bad as what they're trying to treat half the time i mean I mean, it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Just even watching the, the advertisement for these drugs is like yesterday I saw advertisement for HIV medicine. And I'm just like, who, who, who has, if you have HIV, wouldn't the doctor tell you about the HIV medicine? Why would you need to go to your doctor and ask them for a drug for something like that? But that's, I don't know, that's the way capitalism is working within our system of medicine and antidepressants are just marketed everywhere and the slightest you go in there with a problem they're like we'll try this well how about try talking first because maybe it's yeah, talking yeah. through stuff can be much more powerful than right. a drug right 
Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really big plus with psychedelic therapy, and we're seeing that now. Is they're getting people are getting more out of a couple of psychedelic sessions than they than they would have done out of years of conventional therapy and antidepressants. So we're certainly seeing the results, and that's why these things are being fast tracked now. And uh, the FDA fast tracked MDMA as a as a treatment for PTSD, and uh, it's expected to be a prescription medication within the next year. And, and that's been 25 years in the making. Mm -hmm. Rick Doblin of MAPS has been working on that for literally for 25 years and finally sees the finish line. So I have a lot of respect for that type of tenacity. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, what he's done is absolutely amazing. And um, yeah, just the, uh, I, so with the, when, when they pass this um, MDMA, will that immediately have to be descheduled, I imagine? It'll have to move to schedule two because it'll then that'll have a medical. be a prescription medication. So it'll be prescribed by a doctor specifically for PTSD at first, and then they'll probably find cross-platform uses for it after that. But uh, the, the big hurdle is to actually have it available as a prescription medication. Right. It'll have to be a legal source made by a reputable lab, and then they will supply the doctors and they will prescribe it. And that will be the beginning, you know. Right. Well, I'm just saying that right now it's a schedule one substance. Um, right. So, th so that would have to automatically, I would imagine, move it yes. to a schedule two. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, well, still, schedule, the fact schedule one means that it has no therapeutic use mm -hmm. and it's addictive. I mean, those are the two criteria for a schedule one drug. Which and, cannabis uh, is in? Obviously, that's not true for cannabis or right. MDMA now because it's been proven, you know, over and over again. So, that's that has to change, and that'll be a big milestone. Yeah, hopefully it'll start you know pulling into other drugs like lsd lsd got such a bad name and a bad rap from the 60s just from yeah. all the propaganda they threw at it that that's why psilocybin is the first to move forward because a lot of people don't even know what that is but lsd is immediately if, if a candidate came out for pro lsd then the other you know the, the opposing party which would be the conservatives would just bash them saying they wanted to legalize acid but lsd is my favorite substance of the psychedelics that i've done i mean i, I love psilocybin but LSDs, I feel like we're, you know, there's some really profound things we can learn about our own consciousness through that. Yeah, maybe we just need to rebrand it, you know. That's Call it. Papacillin or something. <laughs> That's what it needs. <laughs> you know, give it a give it a better name, more positive, more positive branding. It's a branding issue, I think. hundred <laughs> percent. That's what we need. We need a marketing makeover for for acid because i mean i like the, the term acid makes sense to me because reality kind of melts in front of you and it's very liquid but when other people hear acid they think of your brain physically melting with the whole yeah, you know, yeah. eggs in the frying pan thing and like that's not acid the, or something yeah battery acid exactly <laughs> corrosive substance yeah no it's like that's what it does to your ego it's not what it does to your brain we're doing some interesting work in england right now with lsd and uh, cluster headaches and uh, migraines and that was the original what it was originally uh he thought he was doing right albert hoffman was working on migraines if was i'm not that mistaken. the original purpose i thought it was something else but yeah it was something some other purpose it was you know accidentally sort of discovered like many things are you know so what are they doing what so what's, what's the work they're doing there we're just uh, as a treatment for uh, they're trying to actually synthesize a form of lsd that doesn't have the hallucinatory qualities so you don't actually get high, but there's something about LSD that um, seems to relieve uh, cluster headaches and migraines. Hmm. Some of these people are in just 
in terrible shape. You know, they're huffing on oxygen and writhing around on the ground. I mean, they're really, really severe cases. And uh, there's been some uh, some good results with uh, LSD. So there'll be another another prescription used at some point, I would think. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. I'm wondering if what what is in the LSD that causes the hallucinations or causes the experience? If you if you take that away, are you going to lose right. any other? So that's what positive? they're trying to tease out. Now, they can use computer modeling for this now, which is really interesting because you can take a molecule and rather than keep synthesizing and resynthesizing and trying to figure out the different things, you can actually make predictions with computer models and you can get these computer models to take a psychedelic compound and then redesign it you know 10,000 times in about you know five minutes wow <laughs> and then <laughs> then you got some more stuff to work with so yeah it's pretty exciting what's happening with uh, computer modeling and psychedelics well, that's new substances that's crazy and then eventually that'll turn i imagine into the actual printing to be able to print molecules that they've talked heard people talking about this that... right yeah yeah it's like folding proteins or whatever you can just do it in a in a computer model and then uh, and then print them out I love that idea. I just print out some MDMA, print yeah, it out, yeah. pop it up. All right, pure. Yeah, you'll have a little appliance, you know, like a toaster or a microwave or something. Only you just uh, <laughs> tap in what you want; it'll make it for you. Wow, that's that's a, see that part of the future I'm excited about. Except for the fact that then, if, if the drug war were to continue, that would mean the DEA is kicking in your door and seizing your computer and looking at your hard drive and seeing that you printed yeah. out something illegal. But hopefully by then we're past the drug war and we've understood a little bit more about individual freedoms. Yeah, no, I really think we're getting there. I see a lot of positive progress on a lot of fronts. I mean, we've got look about there's about a dozen universities in uh, North America now that have uh, departments of psychedelic medicine. Um, you know, that's a really positive uh, step. So there's a lot of things happening right now. I mean, the second to last chapter of my book, I tried to summarize what was going on with psychedelic therapy around the world. And when I started to research it, it's like, you know, it's like several books on its own because there's so much going on. I couldn't even keep track of it all. So I just kind of hit hit the high points and just to give the impression that there was a lot happening and, uh, and it's happening very quickly. So it's, it's very positive, uh, very positive things happening right now. And I think the drug war will become a thing of the past. It's got to it's got to go the way of the dodo because it's just obvious to everybody that it doesn't work on any level. Exactly. I know that the, um, the bill just passed in our house yesterday for decriminalization of cannabis or it was it was in a tax put on it. So I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what it looks like. Um, for states that don't have like states like Alabama that don't have any legal me medicinal, will they immediately have to legalize or will the federal government leave it up to the states? So I'm not I sure how that's still have like states law, right? Where they the states make up their own. Their yeah, own it, dep system. it depends on different things. I know, for instance, like homosexual marriage was outlawed and certain states or most states didn't have it. But the federal government stepped in and was like, this is no longer a thing. You can discriminate against and now every state has to do, has to have that so if the federal government were to decriminalize cannabis could states still arrest for it but then i look at things like kratom which is not federally illegal and states like alabama will arrest you for it so right so i'm not sure with the cannabis how they're going to write the legislation it's always a big patchwork of laws in the states isn't it because you have all the different mm -hmm. states with different laws and there'll be there'll be some confusion for a while but eventually i, I do think it will 
even itself out these laws will become universal and the substances will become universally accepted for for various uses and prescription use and eventually recreational use so that we're definitely heading in the right direction i agree um and, and we'll see the biggest things right now we have is the psychedelic research and like i say when i sent you the email i was really excited to talk to you because most of my podcasts recently have been about opioids because that's yeah. the kind of the big thing in the news right now and i've talked to a lot of people who are who want um, them to be completely legalized for the same reason that we're talking about within the ma is the adulterated product is ultimately what's killing people but i do i would agree with you you call them uh, dumb and smart drugs and um yeah. and I, I know what you're saying by that 100 percent because i mean there's drugs like lsd which are going to open your awareness and open you up and they're not physically addictive and right. even really habit forming from my experience i mean you're, you're not going to have a trip like that every single day but the drugs like cocaine that you're just chasing something that's not you're not getting anything from it just keeps you trying to find something in it that nothing's there right but um but i do well, think some of the some of the earliest uh research on uh on ls with lsd was done in the late 50s in Saskatch in saskatchewan in canada by a guy called uh, humphrey osmond and uh and uh abram hoffer these guys did a uh, a study with alcoholics like chronic severe alcoholics and uh, they were curing alcoholism they were curing addiction with with lsd and had these great results and then of course it burst onto the scene and it became illegal and all that shut down these are the guys that coined the term psychedelic mm -hmm. right in the out of Huxley. yeah that's right when that and that was you know in the late 50s so it was a long time ago so it was it was promising at that time and then of course it became the drug war just wiped everything out yeah yeah it's um and it's yeah we've got, we lost you know half a century of research uh, that we yep. could know that much more about our own consciousness but we didn't have the tools yeah we got some catching up to do <laughs> we do and thank god it's finally happening with groups like matt you know pushing the envelope on that um yeah yeah been a long time coming and um, we'll see what happens as these states start decriminalizing and, and more and more opens up how, how we fold it into our culture, because, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm excited about it, I think. Um, and it's interesting to me how much of our culture is psychedelic, like from the 60s, how much influenced art, even when you go to just like Target and you see wallpaper, it's like it's all influenced by psychedelic. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Music, culture, literature, mm -hmm. art, all these all these things have, you know, have been profoundly influenced by psychedelics. There was a there was an edition of the Maps newsletter that was put out one year. It was about it's probably about ten years ago now, but they uh, what they did is they went back to all these different scientists that were working in the in the sixties, and they talked to them about their major breakthroughs. And these were you know these were major breakthroughs like Nobel Nobel laureates in chemistry, in computer science, in physics, and they were solving these hard problems and making these breakthroughs. Where well, it turns out that a lot of them were using LSD. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a lot of these breakthroughs were made with the influence of LSD. And of course, they couldn't say anything about it at the time because it was illegal. But now they're all in their 80s or whatever, and they're retired. And they all made statements. Rick, Art, Rick Doblin found all these people and he, and he got them to write these statements. So the whole newsletter was just full of the, about uh, 25 different statements by uh, these major leading scientists that had made important breakthroughs in their fields and they all accredited it to lsd 
solving these problems, you know, from the DNA molecule with uh, Wilson and Cricks and, uh, and all the computer virt virtual reality language. Yeah, it was written by a guy from an LSD trip. He said it all came to him in this in his LSD trip. It took him two years to write the code, but uh, that was the that was the birth of virtual reality. A lot of computer technology. A lot of the you know the early uh, um, Apple guys mm -hmm. uh, were were doing microdosing. Even Bill Gates, who wasn't like I think Steve got Steve Jobs was more into it, but Bill Gates also did yeah. LSD with him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's quite amazing the influence that it's had on our culture. And that story hasn't really been told completely yet. So uh, that will probably start coming out more and more too. Yeah, I wonder if it, if it is though, are, are we bringing whatever the psychedelic, if psychedelics are communication, some, some kind of chemical communication, I mean, this is getting into the fringe territory, but you know, a communication from some other world, some other reality that's trying to communicate with us and we're opening it now, now we're bringing it alive through technology that it told us about. And now it's coming into our visual worlds. Now we're carrying it around in our pockets everywhere. I mean, fascinating thought. Yeah, you can, you can run wild with that stuff though. And I think that's kind of, there was, you know, Terence McKenna and his ayahuasca machine elves and, you know, catapulting yourself at light speed into, into you know, geometric universes and, and other planets and stuff like this. I don't think that stuff is useful because I don't think it's true. Gotcha. <laughs> I think it does have an amazing effect on human psychology and our brains. It makes our brains work in a different way. And that can be really useful and inspiring and, you know, effective and valuable. But uh, I don't think postulating supernatural uh, explanations is very useful. And that's a real dichotomy right now in psychedelic research, because you've basically got these two camps. You've got the camp, which is you know, science based, which says, let's find out what these molecules do. Let's find out how they work. Let's find out what they're good for and use evidence based science to do that. Then you've got this other group of people who are spinning off into into other worlds and other planets and talking to aliens. <laughs> so, and I understand where it comes from because it does feel like sometimes you're in a completely different reality or you're in another world or something. But I don't think I don't think we are. It's just an I illusion. It's the product of our own psychology, and I think that's an important distinction to make. So I'm in the I'm in the science camp on that one. I understand that. And I, and I, um, I probably lean more that way, but I, it's just fun. The other thoughts are just, they're fun and imaginative, but I think that's where we get in the realm of mythology is fun, but what happens when you believe mythology can be catastrophic. We've seen that with world religions. Yeah. You're back to religion again. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's never done us any good as far as I can see. Yeah. So, and, and that, that realm, I agree with you. I just think it's, it's playful and fun, but like you said, up to a point till it becomes, uh, dogmatic and people start uh, people are all of a sudden willing to kill over mythology and that happens all the time for some reason yeah, it also species. gets in the way of the legitimate the legitimate uh, understanding of these substances because uh you know you can do an ayahuasca session and it can be it can be uh you know valuable and it can be uh, guided or whatnot but when you get into talking about you know animal spirits um, I don't think it's useful. I think it's distracting from actually what's going on, creating, yeah. a, creating a supernatural or fantastical explanation for these things. I think it takes you further away from the truth. I can see that. And, it's, and within the, um, like you said, for scientific research purposes, there, there really isn't a place for these more crazy ideas of what if it's another dimension, like I'm saying, but 
when you're in the moment of the psychedelic experience, like say you're at a rave and you're dancing with a group and it's like you're a flock of, you know, like you're a flock of birds. How do they all know when to move at each time? It is, they don't, they just do it. And when you're in dancing like that and that happens with you in a group or if you're, for me, it's happened in bands where you're playing and all of a sudden you're just flowing together. Yeah. That kind of thing. It's, I think it's hard to put that in a lab and try to, to figure out exactly what's going on with each consciousness. And once you do that, you strip away a lot of its beauty. Sometimes it's nice to just believe in something a little more, a, a, a connectiveness that is deeper than just what you can write down with math, math, you know, math. That's the argument. That's the argument for religion, that it's a consoling fantasy, but a fantasy nevertheless. True. But when you get a group of people together, like say they're all singing gospel and they're all locked into it because my, my aunt talks about it when she goes to church how she feels and when she describes it i'm like that reminds me of when i went to bonnaroo and did mushrooms but exactly she, she's, she's experiencing that but the difference with bonnaroo and mushrooms is i was left feeling peace love and happiness and i didn't go and say all right now we have to figure out how to you know get other people to come you know i'll, I'll tell people about it it's great but it's not like a, um like religion becomes like a this or hell it's like it's like no yeah, it's yeah. like this or don't do it like you don't have to yeah but, but that's how wrong it can go right mm -hmm. <laughs> that that sort of magical thinking is that's how that's how it can go very wrong very quickly so that's why i don't think it's very useful i agree but also i think they're like that's the reason christianity became the biggest religion that it is because it was the first to be so clear about there's one god and there's heaven and then there's hell and then the hell was so so awful that they were able to sell this to so many people of well you don't want this versus the more uh you know polygamous religions that are uh, not polygamous but um poly polytheist that, yeah. that, that have multiple gods and multiple things that's more playful and more fun you believe in it or you don't but when you have but, christianity but it's just, just as equally untrue <laughs> yeah i mean i'm not <laughs> well it's just like believing in zeus and and poseidon and all those the greek Same mythology thing, right yeah so you actually said that in your book i thought well, it was interesting you said that i'll oh, go ahead you go I was saying you said Rome had a choice that, you know, they could choose Greek philosophy or Christianity, and we've been paying for that ever since. Right. Yeah, I think how much further ahead we'd been if we'd gone with uh, logic and reason instead of, uh, you know, fantastical uh, supernatural explanations. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I do think that we have, you know, a, a lot of people did go with logic. They just allowed christianity to be you know for the masses y'all can have that but the, the institutions kept working towards logic and reason and, and the problem is they've had to fight christianity throughout the whole time which has held them back yeah well we're under the logic and reason and science is under serious attack right now yeah from from the irrational elements in society because that you know the truth is seems to be no longer important people want to create their own uh their own private versions of the truth and uh we don't seem to be able to agree on the agree on facts when you can't agree on facts you have no basis of 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 you know civil discourse civil discourse breaks down at that point and that's what we're seeing that's what you're seeing in a lot of places now is just people in these intractable irrational positions uh, that can never change their mind so we can't make any progress I 100% agree with you. And, and I have seen it with uh, like a lot of people I know from, I'm from North Carolina, like I said, and uh, the, uh, the religion there, and it's the religious, I think that those that are equipped mentally to be religious, to, to buy all that nonsense, sorry to call yeah. it that if you're listening, you're religious, but I mean, come on. And um, 
their minds were equipped when the Trump movement happened. They're, they already had the neural networks ready to, to buy the bullshit that they wanted to buy. So their brains just like uploaded it right up into that system. And it was like, now whatever reality they, they see, they don't have to see if it doesn't go right in line with what they're saying. So yeah, yeah. things that like George Orwell wrote about in 1984, when he talked about double think people holding two contradictory ideas, I thought it was far-fetched, but obviously unlike George Orwell, I didn't live through the authoritarian times, but now I understand it. Now it's not far-fetched. I completely saw it happen in real, in real life. Yeah. You see it every day on the internet now. Mm -hmm. It's bizarre. It's extremely <clears throat> and scary also. Well, it's a fact that if you, and that's the problem, that's the slippery slope of irrational thinking. Like at first it might seem fun and more interesting and, you know, you make friends in that circle, but it's a fact that if you believe one conspiracy theory, you're very likely to, to believe many conspiracy theories and then more and more, and that becomes your reality, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not based in, uh, in, in truth or fact. So we become disconnected from reality in that way. And that's, I think that's a big problem. I think it's the biggest problem we face right now. Well, especially when you have, I mean, there's a certain percentage of people, people I know who don't believe the world's round. So once yeah, you get yeah. that far, it's like, okay, well then if we can't agree on that. Right. Then it's game over, right? Like where right. do you start from that? You know, if somebody believes the earth is flat, I mean, okay, <laughs> you can believe what you want, but it's uh it's uh it's yeah it's a slippery slope and that type of thinking is you know is seeping into every single aspect of of human culture right now especially politics you know that's a seems to be an insoluble problem at this point it does and i wonder like when when the internet first started you know everybody started having in, in their phones and information was so freely being spread i thought this was the most amazing thing ever i was like information's free the whole yeah. world's going to go better. But now the problem is, is people don't know what's real and what's not because, because of there's so much flow of information that there's all different versions of, of reality are coming through your phone. So people get to pick their own realities and find articles and whatever they want to back up whatever reality they want to believe in. So Yeah. And you just spin through your phone and read the headlines and believe everything you see. It's the problem with social media though. I think more than the internet mm -hmm. I mean, I think no, you're the right. internet is absolutely fantastic. It's a repository of all human knowledge at your fingertips, but you have to, you have to be really careful with your sources. I mean, if you want to, if you go to the NASA site, you'll get good information about cosmology. You know, if you go to medical sites, you get, you know, good, the best information available about medical issues. Uh, if you, if you spend all your time on Facebook and Twitter, you'll get the opinions of every nut job in the world. <laughs> Yeah. So that's a problem, you know, and these algorithms are fine tuned for conflict and uh, and uh, division. So uh, there's another problem. I don't understand why they can't write these algorithms to uh, accentuate empathy and compassion, for instance. Like, why wouldn't that be a thing that they could do? It's probably not quite as profitable, but all they need is some basic regulation from the government to just change that to where it becomes if you're if if, if you if their competitors can't do it either, then there will be no incentive to do it. Yeah. No, there has to be has to be laws. There has to be top down laws to make these things happen. Otherwise, people are not going to do it on their own. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the awareness. They don't have the intelligence to do it. So you have to uh, you have to make laws. And I think social media does need to be regulated to some degree. I agree. You get into all the thorny issues of, uh, you know, free speech. Yeah, well, they were already into those issues. So, yeah, very much so. So we got to figure that out. And I mean, it's important, like, like Scott Galloway brought up, uh, 
Oh, Scott Galloway. Yeah, Scott Galloway. He brought up this point. You know, it was like the basic point of if you have a, a business that can dump its pollutants into the river, it can make a lot more profit. So if the other company is competing with is already dumping this stuff in the river, then in order to stay competitive, they have to. So both businesses need the government to make that rule, to make that something you can't do so that they can right. compete without dumping their stuff into the river. And that's why we need faith. We need laws against Facebook that they, that they'll, all the companies will be able to benefit from building a better world. If they are things they just can't do making these algorithms that are purposely going to suck someone down a rabbit hole of not of misinformation to the point where they're going to be all right extremists. Yeah. And I think we're seeing the beginning of that. Now there is a slightly more, there's a little bit more self-regulation on social media and there's more pressure for governments to look at these things more critically and, uh, and make appropriate laws so that, uh, you know, you can protect people from, from the madness. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I was just realizing we just kind of went off on a, a different tangent from the drug war, but it was really interesting either way. I, I love talking to you about it, but I, I did want to talk to you more about your book, but, um, um, it was just so, so fascinating. Confessions of an ethical drug dealer. I just want my, my, the people that listen to my podcast know where they can buy it. And just a real quick, um, you know, you were uh, basically a drug dealer. And as far as that ethical drug dealer, because drug dealer has such a negative connotation to people, yeah, to a lot of people. And it's like you were selling cannabis and um, MDMA, but and that's the thing. If if you're selling something like MDMA, it's a great it's a great drug. And if you're selling it uh, in its pure form, then I mean, this is uh, you're doing a service because people need to have a, a place they can get good stuff. But anyway, you're out of the business now. But yeah, talk about it for just a minute. Well, that was that was my impetus to start to start selling because uh, I was consuming these drugs, and so was everybody I knew. And so um, I wanted a safe, safe and reliable supply. So I took the time and trouble to make very good contacts and get the purest, you know, highest quality psychedelics I could find. And then disseminate those to my uh, to my friends, basically, and people that I knew. I mean, I was never you know, selling drugs on the street corner or anything. It was basically the people that I knew and you know liked and loved, and I wanted them to have the the best sources, and uh, I needed that source for myself as well. So that was my impetus. That was the ethical part. And I only ever dealt psychedelics. I never dealt you know crack or crystal or mess or any of that. So uh, I was never interested in those drugs. And uh, so, yeah, that was the ethical part. So it was a confessions of an ethical drug dealer was a, a you know, a, a purposefully provocative title to uh, make that point that there is ethical drug use and there is, you know, ethical drug, uh, drug uh, commerce. And that needs to be recognized because we have such a, such a, bad where i'm i think i just lost you, there you, I'm right, I hear you. and uh, yeah there, we have such a bad reputation that um and that was part of the impetus of writing the book too was to present uh you know a more realistic view of uh, safe responsible ethical drug use yeah that's what i say it's also ethical drug consumption people that just because you're using drugs there's this idea that for using drugs then there's something's going on in your life we have to fix no some people love doing drugs for recreational purposes and they're successful yeah. motivated people loving caring people that you would love to be around that would bring nothing but positive energy into your life and they use drugs yeah and then that, that's been my experience that's been my 50-year experience is that almost everybody i know has, has experimented with psychedelics and uh, i've been using them regularly for 50 years and uh, never had a problem so that's to me that was that was the reality of drug use not 
not what you see on the news about people dropping dead all over the place. That's a whole different problem. That's a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. It's not really a drug crisis. It's a, it's a mental health problem. People are self-medicating because they've got serious problems. And then there's this problem with safe supply. And so people are getting poisoned as well. So that's that whole issue. I mean, that, that's never been part of my reality or part of my world at all. So that was this, this book was to sort of present, here's my life and here's my experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a more realistic way of looking at these things. I, I love it. And I really, really did enjoy the book. I mean, you're, this, this is, it was a page turner. I'm telling you, I just couldn't put it down. It was awesome, yeah. man. Yeah, a lot of people said that. Yeah, I really I had did. people that never read books and they read it all through, like for 14 hours straight. Nice. <laughs> and they said they hadn't read a book in 20 years. <laughs> So that's a, that's a, that was a good compliment. It was good to hear. Yeah, that's great. And I, and I yeah, I really enjoy it. And I, I'm you know, I say anybody listening, I, I really recommend you get this. Now I bought it on Amazon, if I remember. Do you recommend? Is there a place that um, better place to get it, or is Amazon as good as any? It's good as any. It's on all the all the online platforms, and it's available on print on demand or ebook. And you just type in "Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer" by Jimmy Fritz, and you'll find it all over the place. I also have a website called JimmyFritz.ca. So if you go there, I'm also a musician. I've got five albums there. I've got uh, many, you know, a couple of dozen music videos and my original songs. I've got some screenplays, some films that I made. I was a filmmaker for 10 years and uh, lots of music and my books and everything is on jimmyfritz.ca. Awesome. Well, Jimmy, it was so good talking with you. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Nice talking to you too, man. All right. You have a good one. Cheers. Take care. Peace out. Cheers. Peace out. All right, peace, Nicks. As always, if you enjoy what we're doing, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Peace on Drugs Podcast. If you want to subscribe to our newsletter, go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe. All right, we're going to hand it over to Twiggy Branches. Peace out. out.
my doctor? Are you my dealer? 